0: On this first Sunday after Christmas, we want to reflect on the implications and the power of the incarnation of our God coming in human flesh. And our reading today is from John chapter 1, the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And, and, through, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. All through the Christmas season, our family has various traditions that we do, and one of them is we watch Christmas movies, and the cheesier the movie is, the more I'm in for it. If the movie's cheesy, I'll watch it. If the plot is cheesy, I'll still watch it. But if the movie's cheesy and the plot is cheesy, and the acting looks like there was a Nepo baby who was given an acting role, then I'll still watch it. And the way that we watch movies at our house is we, ter- we watch them in the basement and we turn the volume to 100. Not 85, not 96, not 72, 100. And that's how we like to watch movies. And uh, after the movie's over and the credits are rolling, we turn the volume down to, you know, a reasonable level. But every once in a while, we forget. And then when you turn the TV on the next time, the Netflix is quite shocking. It demands a response. You can't just, you can't not respond. And this text, John intentionally in a literary form, dials the volume to 100. It's a text that demands a response. And if we take a minute to marinate in what John is really saying, what happened that first Christmas, we recognize it's just impossible to go about our business because there is a literary and... uh, gospel explosion that's going on that we have to respond to. John describes Jesus coming into the world as light driving out darkness. This is cosmic conflict. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness didn't overcome it. It's aggressive language. It's war language. It's militant language. This is God waging war. And he's waging war over the Satan, over Satan, over the enemy, over the the powers of darkness, because he loves us. He loves this creation. He's prophesied this since Genesis 3 that he's going to come, that there would be that wounded warrior who would come and reclaim uh, his beloved creation. And he has overcome and united to Christ. You and I are called to overcome, but what is it going to look like for us to overcome? What does it look like when the presence of light dispels our sin and dispels our darkness? Powerful level 100 implications here because for the life of us as Christians, we believe that life is not just a slow march into darkness. It's not a slow march into non-existence. This text is like a sunrise. It's a slow march into life. It's a slow march into life. It's a slow march into restoration. The Christian looks at the news feed very differently than the person who believes at their core that life is a slow march into non-existence. We don't have to live with this radical dislocation as positive nihilists, trying to say that nothing ultimately matters, but we're going to tell ourselves in the meantime everything's really important so we can get muscle through the day. So this text gives us this powerful, militant language. God coming. It uses that military term of overcoming. And what did it look like? This overcoming of of the darkness. You know, the people of God in every generation have grappled with darkness. We've seen the dissolving of relationships as a result of darkness. We experience the sorrow of disease and death as a result of darkness. There's carnage found in the wake of greed. There is the endless fight against injustice or senseless violence. The predictable ruin of communities, the predictable ruin of nations that comes as a result of rulers intoxicated with the love of ruling. We've always had to grapple with this darkness. So what did it look when God got militant about darkness? It looked like humiliation and humiliating himself and humbling himself and the transcendent becoming tender and God condescending into a manger, the symbol of ultimate Poverty, being born into the saliva of animals. It looked like love and care and sacrifice. That's what it looked like. What will it look like for you and I to live as overcomers? It's going to look like humility and love and sacrifice and self-emptying and going into the world with the with a, with a deep conviction that this life is quite simply not all there is. We are free and liberated to give our life away. Jesus Christ enters into humanity's darkness and he experiences life under our darkness. The Word became flesh. He loved those who are oppressed by the darkness. He speaks truth to the relig- religious leaders that get into bed with the powers of darkness. He suffers and dies on the cross, and when he dies, the sky at the middle of the day turns to darkness. On the third day, the tomb is empty. His resurrection means that in the end, there will be no darkness. This is all good news in tiring days. There's a theologian and uh, English playwright. Her name is Dorothy Sayers. She says this concerning the Incarnation. We may call the doctrine exhilarating or we may call it devastating. We may call the doctrine of the Incarnation a revelation or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull and words have no meaning at all, what in heaven's name can we call exciting? See, verse 1 begins with this intentional memory-jogging phrase of, in the beginning, the Word became flesh, making us think very intentionally of Genesis. John is using this literary device on purpose because the creation is a foreshadowing of our spiritual recreation. In the beginning, there is only death, and the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters where there can be no life. And you and I, we are born dead unto God. We don't want God. We are our own God. But as the Spirit of God hovers over the deadness of our souls, in the hearing of the preaching of Christ, as Christ is preached into our ears, life comes from death. The whole process of creation is foreshadowed, it, it, it is revisited beautifully in the process of spiritual recreation and of salvation. Christ was before everything. Christ was the one who created everything. Christ has come to save us and be with us in everything. And so John calls Jesus the word in the Greek, he calls them the logos. He calls them the logic. Why does he use this term? Why would he say that? You know, this isn't new. It's actually a very familiar term that John is using in a different way. It's a turn of phrase. He's wanting to catch everybody's attention. There's a philosopher named Heraclitus about 500 years before John wrote this, and when Heraclitus talked about the logos, it was a common term in philosophy talking about the defining pr- principle of the cosmos. And then during John's lifetime, there was another philosopher named Philo who used the same word logos, and he used it in a different way, a more direct way than Heraclitus used it. And Philo, in his writings, he used the word logos to say, well, the logos, the logic, the defining principles of the universe, this is actually the means that the gods used to create the universe. So already in the ethos of the culture was this idea that there was this prevailing Logos, this logic that existed in science and in nature and in the stars, and they, were, they would think about this sort of this defining principle. And so John comes along, and he takes this term Logos, which was familiar, and he uses it in an evangelistic way. John is saying, when the universe was created, the order, the reason, the logic that you're all searching for in your mathematics and in your philosophy, it's not a force; it's a person. It's found, the answer that your soul is craving, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. To borrow from uh, geneticist Francis Collins, the fingerprints of God found all throughout human DNA. This is the language of God. The mind-boggling precision, the logos of the universe. And John is using this word logos evangelistically. Christ is the one, the God, the one who is behind the beginning. In a It it is a a bold and powerful and evangelistic declaration. You know, there's kids in the service today, so maybe I'll explain it this way for those of you guys who could care less about what I just said about Philo. If you are playing exploding kittens with your friends and your friend keeps drawing a diffuse card over and over and over and over, the first time they draw the diffuse card, you might say, wow! Wow! But the 20th time they draw it, you're not going to say, wow. You're going to say, hmm. If you're playing Pokemon, and every single time your friend plays their Pokemon card, not once, not twice, not ten times, you play your friend at Pokemon a thousand times, and your friend has the right combination every single time to beat you at Pokemon, the first couple times they beat you, you might say, wow. But after a thousand pokemon matches your friend has gone a thousand for a thousand you're not gonna say wow you're gonna say hmm i think somebody is doing something for the big kids well i know that there's a lot of big kids in here that play pokemon but let's use another if you are playing poker and you someone at your table gets a royal flush the odds of a royal flush are one in 31,000 If there's a royal flush at your poker game, you're going to say, wow. But you know, if there's a second royal flush, the odds go from 31,000 to like 267 million. If there's two royal flushes, you're not going to say, wow. Nobody executing any level of reason is going to say, wow. Everybody's going to say, hmm, somebody is doing something. And John is saying... That the cosmos did not hand itself royal flushes for millennia upon millennia upon millennia. The Logos is Jesus Christ, the one who has defeated death. Not the missing body theory, the resurrected Christ who for a period of 40 days appeared to hundreds. This one, he is the reason. The word has become flesh. What are the implications of this God? coming among us. Jesus personifies the answer for the longing of the human soul. What does the human soul want? We want utopia, but we can't create it. We're homeless utopians. We want the end of sorrow. We want the end of injustice. We want healthy bodies that don't break down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, our God become flesh, the word who came and dwelt among us. He is the culmination of the deepest longings of what we all desire. The eternal word of God created us, The indwelling Spirit of God recreated us, and the written Word of God instructs us and guides us. It says in verse 13 that those of us who've received him, he's been given the right to become the children of God. Anyone, regardless of where we have come from, regardless of what we've done, can receive this grace upon grace. That's why very intentionally he uses the phrase, not of a husband's will. There's many times in the New Testament where, you can, uh, where the word anthropos is used, and it doesn't mean men as in males, it just means hey guys, like Italians would say ciao ragazzi, they don't mean only one, they just mean everybody. Like we say hey guys, but right here John specifically says not of a husband's will, and so that is important because it's a picture of the ancient world where your value and who you were and everything had to do with who's your daddy. And that's how culture ran, and many cultures still operate this way, and many cultures, our culture operates this way. Not that we would say, who's your daddy? But they would say, what is your, uh, by what means do you garner value and acceptance? Who's your daddy? Maybe not your biological daddy. Who's your academic daddy? Who's your daddy? And here, John is saying, we can be received by God not on the basis of where we have come from, but on the basis of his grace and his grace alone. And we receive this grace upon grace. In verse 17, as I close, he says that the law has come through Moses, but this grace and this truth has come through Jesus Christ. A very intentional connection as we consider the implications of the incarnate God this first Sunday after Christmas. Moses was born while God's people were suffering under Pharaoh. Jesus was born while God's people were suffering under Herod. Pharaoh killed scores of male children in an effort to destroy Moses. Herod killed scores of male children in an effort to destroy Jesus. Moses' mission was to deliver God's children from slavery in Egypt. Jesus' mission was to deliver God's children from slavery and sin and death. Moses instructed God's children to sacrifice a Passover lamb for their sin. Jesus was the final sacrifice and the one true Passover lamb who has taken away our sin. Moses lifted up a bronze serpent on a pole, and all those who looked on it had their sickness taken away. Jesus was lifted up on a cross, and all who looked to him have their sin and the finality of death taken away. Moses was the first mediator. Jesus is the final mediator. Moses gave the Ten Commandments to God's children. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments for God's children. Moses died on a hill outside the Promised Land because he could not keep God's law. Jesus died on a hill outside Jerusalem because we can't keep God's law. Moses could not look on the face of God. Jesus shows us the face of God. The law came through Moses and grace and truth came Jesus Christ. The eternal word was heard through a human voice. The God who thundered on Mount Sinai cried in this manger. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. May we enjoy him and glorify him forever. Amen.